Welcome to this edition of On Politics. I'm Dr. Eric Morrow at Tarleton State University, and I want to welcome you to this week's show. I also want to remind you that you can follow us on Facebook. That's On Politics with Eric Morrow, where you can find interesting and engaging articles about the issues that we cover each week. And then, of course, you can listen to the show as we are here today, 12 noon, KTRL 90.5 FM and on tarletonradio.com, where the show is live streamed. You can also listen after the show airs on SoundCloud or where you get your podcasts, but I also want to announce this week that we are now available through Amazon Podcasts. So if you go to Amazon, look up podcast and look up On Politics with Eric Morrow, then you will find previous editions of the show that you can download and listen to. So I want to thank you for joining this, us this week as we move closer and closer to a national election, the general election, which, of course, the focus is on the presidency, even though we have other elections that are happening in the state and locally. Uh, but uh, as we move closer to that election, one of the things that we have seen that is a, a major issue that has come to the forefront, and I think this was on front and center during uh, the conventions, during the week of the conventions, when you had uh, protests, uh, when you had uh, some of these becoming uh, 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 violent, you know, in, in certain cities uh, that were happening uh, as these conventions were, were going on, especially the week of the Republican convention, when also the, the, the messaging and some of the focus uh, began to be or, or continue to be on law and order. And we know as we move closer to the debates, the presidential debates, that this is most likely going to be one of the major issues as some of this continues around the country in response to uh, what happened with George Floyd in Minneapolis and, and what has happened and come to light in other places, as well as we continue to see videos surface and other, other things that add to this, uh, to the, this environment where, where racial injustice, where uh, policing, where many elements of this are under uh, the spotlight and are being looked at and, and addressed in, in various ways and on various levels. Today, what I wanted to do on the show is first, I wanted to welcome back uh, Dr. Alex Del Carmen, the Associate Dean for our College of Liberal and Fine Arts, but also a national and international expert in criminology. Uh, he has a new book out, Racial Profiling and Policing. Uh, he uh, uh, speaks regularly, uh, not just in the media, but to professionals uh, in his work on, on many of these issues. But I wanted to, I invited him back today to talk about uh, this, these issues around law and order uh, related to the presidency, because we see this becoming a very substantial element in the rhetoric, in the messaging, in the, the campaigning that is going on leading up to the election. And I think it's very important for our listeners to kind of understand really what is the role of the presidency when we look at what's happening across the nation and how a presidential administration or through uh, the executive branch of government or through supporting various policy initiatives uh, engages with this. Because I think a lot of what we're hearing are presidential candidates that are going back and forth saying, I'll address this. So, no, he won't address this. I'll address it. It's a, it, it's a, it's a lot of, uh, like I said, rhetoric without a lot of substance. And, and so my question then comes out of that is, what, what really is the role of a president? in addressing some of these issues that we're seeing happening uh, in policing, as well as the, the some of the issues dealing with uh, uh, racial tensions and racial injustice around the country. So I welcome uh, Dr. Del Carmen. Glad you can join us today and be back on the show. And I, I just want to put that, that first question to you with this focus going on throughout the country and being highlighted by both campaigns for president. Uh, what, in terms of your understanding of this and the role that a, a, a president of the United States uh, has in engaging with these issues and challenges that, that we see happening around us? So thanks for having me again. It's so great to be back and excited uh, for all of you that you're going to be available on Amazon now. Um, one you. of the things that, uh, that we see, and if you go back really to the role of the presidency, particularly in the past uh, few years, and I say few uh, underscore it because I don't mean it in the context of, of, of just, you know, the past two administrations, but really since the Clinton administration, you see that the president has had a very, very active role 
in setting the tone across the United States uh, on, on a great deal of what happens in law enforcement, right? So, so if you look at the Clinton administration, when he put out 100,000 police officers in the streets of the U.S., and, and these came, by the way, in the form of a grant, uh, whereby the, the, the local agency uh, would actually apply for a grant at the federal level and receive X number of police officers for two or three years being paid for by the federal government. And 99.9% of the local law enforcement, they actually not only did that, but they also used that as a conduit to keep those officers in place and simply pick up the bill, you know, three or four years later locally to be able to pay for it. But along with that benefit of additional police officers came USC 14141, which if you look at that particular code, what it did do is it allowed for the federal government to essentially intervene in local law enforcement as it relates to consent decrees. So, so if you look at, 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 you know, it's kind of interesting because we think of the presidency as just that one person that shows up at the White House and says a couple of nice things, gives a nice speech, signs off on executive order, and off they go. But, but aside from setting the tone about something that is important in the, you know, in the country or throughout the country, they do have a great deal of authority um, in, in influencing the local law enforcement community, right? So, so you see it in the form of funding. You see it in the form of structure. Um, oftentimes, the, the feds will put out a, a grant proposal uh, announcement uh, where local agencies will then compete for that. And that sets the tone in particular area, whether it's to fight drugs, uh, say no to drug campaign during the Reagan administration, or you look at uh, racial inequality during the Obama administration. And during the Bush administration before that, uh, Bush 43, where you look at it from the standpoint of fighting terrorism. So, so regardless of, of where that's going, the local law enforcement entities are influenced and really through, other than, than setting the tone, through the uh, impact that the executive has uh, in terms of dollars that they make available to everyone else. So when we look at that, that influence and impact uh, with bringing federal dollars and federal resources, uh, one, one of the things that's always a concern with state and local governments with federal dollars often come uh, federal guidelines and, and federal directives that, that have to be met in order to uh, ensure that, that that funding is received and, and is able to be used. Has that created any challenges at, at, at the state and local level or maybe even a difference between, say, like large urban areas compared to others? where there is a, a focus that the federal government wants, but maybe that's not necessarily what's, uh, what, what uh, state and, and local leaders see as well. Absolutely. So, so one of the things that we see, for instance, is that, you know, it's, it's kind of like going back to what Reagan used to say in his speeches, that if somebody knocks at your door and says, I'm here on behalf of the government um, and I'm here to help you, that that was that there were there were no greater contradictory words in one sentence than those, right? But but at the end of the day, what happens from the federal entities is that they actually administer this money, they facilitate it, but it always comes with strings attached, right? And and or requirements. And so 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 many of the local communities that are you know rural areas, say here in Texas, where the state of Texas has the most law enforcement entities in the state out of any state in the United States, right? So then, and, and most of our entities of law enforcement in Texas are in fact rural, small uh, to medium-sized agencies. And so, so you, you, you give money from, from Washington, DC to one of these very small agencies and you require them to evaluate uh, what happens with the money to do follow-up reports, um, to show progress and success rates in however the money is being spent it does present a significant challenge for them because they don't have the ability, the equipment, or the talent uh, that, say, some of the bigger cities would have in being able to have entire units uh, within the police department that are uh, going, going to address and meet those requirements. And so what essentially ends up happening is that the smaller agencies end up losing the money or sometimes not qualifying for the money as some of the larger agencies do. So it does present a challenge. And obviously in the execution of it, right? So, so we had in, back in the 90s, what is called the weed and seed programs, which were basically grant money that came into cities that allowed them to weed out the crime and plant the seeds. That's why it was called weed and seed, um, plant out the seeds to prevent crime. And well, they all had to be evaluated. And so, so, you know, smaller agencies did not have the capacity to do it. And so they either lost a bid 
uh, to get the money or they simply were not able to keep the money after after a few months. And so it, it is, uh, they are at a disadvantage. Uh, it is very much not connected and not necessarily representative of most law enforcement throughout the United States, but it's really about capacity uh, to be able to realize the grant and some of the funding that comes with it. We've seen in this uh, climate that we're in, where we've, we've seen what's going on, going on in Portland and, and, and in other areas where uh, the federal government has had a role. The uh, Chicago, again, has been another one that's kind of been under, uh, uh, I guess, the watch of federal government, but you've also had federal agents deployed there as well. Um, th this gets cast sometimes as a uh, as an us against them uh, in trying to deal with some of these issues as trying to help people understand that is, is this really a, a, a conflict of, of, of approach and what outcomes local law enforcement want over against federal, or is this, is there much more collaboration than what's portrayed sometimes in trying to, to, to resolve some of these issues? Uh, you know, certainly people don't want the majority of people don't want the violence. They don't want the destruction and so on. And 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 but then the, I'm sure people around the country look at some of these situations and question the capacity of of local law enforcement uh, in those areas to be able to deal with some of these issues. So I, I I don't always see that necessarily as a as a conflict with federal government involvement. But what what do you see and what's your perspective on on some of those situations where and sometimes it's kind of cast as the federal government intruding on local agencies to who are temp, either attempting or, or maybe even asking for help to solve some of their challenges. All right. So, so if we take away the Hollywood, you know, sort of perspective on the feds not getting along with the local law enforcement and whatnot, in reality, and I've seen this and I've been part of this for many years, as you know, is I've seen a, a very good collaborative effort between the local folks and the and the and the feds uh, particularly when there is a major crime you know um you know I, I remember being in new orleans when i was part of the consent decree there as a federal monitor and and one of the officers that was involved in the task force was shot he, he survived but but he barely survived and i remember showing up to the, to the scene and seeing his vest his bulletproof vest full of blood and I and I do remember the the it wasn't really a power struggle, but sort of the dynamic that existed between the FBI when they showed up to the scene and they said, we're the FBI, we're taking over. This is a federal matter. And the local folks saying, but he's one of our guys. We want to do something with it. That lasted for about 30 seconds, um, you know, and then it quickly went away. And you could see a collaborative spirit between the federal agencies and the local agencies in working together towards a crime. To say that it's a perfect relationship would be an exaggeration. To say that it's a dysfunctional relationship would be far away from the truth. I think it's a working relationship. I think there are times, and of course, we, you know, you put in their personality, circumstances, and geog geography, and you will oftentimes find that there are moments, instances, when the local folks resent the fact that you've got federal agents coming in to dictate local politics. And I think that's what we've seen recently in Portland and Seattle, where you were some of the local politicians are saying, look, what are these feds doing here? Technically and legally, the federal agents can come in and serve as a, in a protective role on those federal buildings, right? So that's part of their role is federal courthouses, any kind of federal building uh, the United States federal government is responsible for. So they're within their jurisdiction. The legal question that has come about is how far can they go from that federal building to protect that property and what exactly should they do in, in terms of that protection? Obviously, they have the legal right to be there. They have all the authority of law enforcement. But the question really is, how is that different from a local police officer that may have a different type of jurisdiction over that? But I would say, all in all, to answer your question, I, I think the relationship is, 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 is well-established. It works well for the most part. But from time to time, you do see some of those differences. We are speaking with Dr. Alex Del Carmen, Associate Dean and, and Professor of Criminology in the College of Liberal and Fine Arts. So that turns us to look at the back to the presidency in this, this election uh, and the messaging that's coming from those campaigns. And, and, and I wanted to kind of turn this around because I, I don't know that this is the perspective. We're, we hear what the candidates are saying. Uh, you have been involved in law enforcement uh, for, for decades. You've, you've been engaged with people who are day-to-day -day in, in the trenches, on the streets, we should say, that are, uh, that are addressing these issues. Uh, 
what is the perspective of people in law enforcement when they look to the president? Uh, here, here we're going to hear in the next few weeks, we're going to hear lots of messaging, I think, on law and order, on hopefully some substantive uh, uh, policy uh, uh, plans for uh, the, the days and months and, and years ahead. How is that? How is that person, the, the, the president, looked at by law enforcement in relationship to criminal justice policy and in the role that the federal government uh, has in this area throughout the country? Yeah, you know, po po politically, it's very sad for me that 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 the, the nature of the job of law enforcement, which is to protect and serve, has been politicized, not recently, but for decades, right? So this is not a new phenomenon, but but I think we've seen it sort of become more bipolar in the past, you know, eight months, certainly since the death of George Floyd on May 25th of this year. Um, you know, we see one candidate that says, you know, look, I, you know, I am the candidate of law and order. And then we, we hear another candidate that basically says, you know, I love police officers, but I want them to be to modify and and to adjust, you know, police departments in terms of what they do. You know, from the folks that I talk to, it depends on who you ask. If you if you ask that line officer, you know, that 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 officer that is out there in the patrol car responding to calls, I think there's a there's definitely an overwhelming majority of them that support Trump. I mean, I think you will see that many of them believe and I don't know that they support him because they feel that Trump is the best candidate uh, per se or that he represents their values or belief systems as much as what he's not. All right. Uh, because they look at Biden and they, they fear Biden from the sense that that, you know, they feel that Biden is going to be someone that's going to come in and essentially impose consent decrees on every police department across the nation. And they're going to lose a great deal of their autonomy, whether that's real or not. It's irrelevant. Right. That's the perspective. But that's the perception that they have. They have they have. And it's been created by some of the some of the rhetoric that you hear. Uh, from both candidates, and in my view, and, and you're the analyst of politics, not me, but I will tell you that from my perspective, what I see is I see that that that's why the, the Republicans, uh, particularly Trump, uh, President Trump, has been emphasizing this message of law and order. I'm, I'm the president that's on your side is because he, he understands that that's, a, that's an area that he can build very strongly uh, among the law enforcement entities throughout the United States, which are very powerful. They have a lot of influence. And as you know, in the Northeast, you know, they, they're very much unionized and they carry a lot of votes, right? Not just the vote of the officers, but the vote of the families. So I've seen that in, in recent months. And I think as more protests erupt around the nation um, and, and, and more questions come about on a shooting or, or what happens to a particular suspect, um, I think that, that, that people are beginning to sort of have a, a very divisive view of these two political campaigns and political candidates as it relates to law enforcement. And some of that uh, too could be, like you're saying, it's the unknown. You know, it's a it, it's it's an unknown with Biden in terms of what might be implemented. Uh, and I think some of that is challenging at this point because, and, and even I would say with both candidates, because uh, it, it has been very limited on substance to this point. I think that's that's one of the challenges going forward. And and I don't know if you see conversations going on at the federal level in terms of. How, how do we engage with these issues? What should be the role of, of the president and of the executive going forward and trying to address, as, as some have said, you know, Trump responds to issues, but it doesn't always appear there's a strategy. And so, and so that's where I want to turn to now, because I, we know these issues are going to persist. We know that even if there's a time of calm at some point, they're going to come back up again. We've just seen this over and over again over the last several uh, decades. And so whoever's in the White House, whether it's President Trump reelected or, or Joe Biden, they're going they're going to have to uh, address some of this. They're going to have to take a leadership role. And I, I wanted to get your thoughts on what you think are the, the critical things that need to be the focus right now. Uh, what what kind of strategy uh, should be uh, uh, working, whatever uh, solutions or, or not? Not so much that some of these problems are just going to be solved right away, but that what are what are approaches to try to make some progress uh, in some of these areas? Because it seems like the politis politicization is adding to the complexity of it, as well as uh, all of these things, the tensions and other things that have been around that just continue to persist. 
year in, year out that, that we're just not able, have not been able to successfully address uh, in this country. What, what, what do you think the look ahead is? Yes. Or, or what, what path should they be on? I should ask. Right, right, right. So, so, so let me kind of take you back a little bit and look at, for instance, the Justice Department, right? So, so the Justice Department, and we have sort of an ongoing joke that some of us that work with them, we often say that there are two justice departments out there. There's one that's the political appointees, which are the higher ups, and then there are the career, you know, individuals that are working, you know, um, as part of the, the, you know, whatever government is in the White House, but they're just simply, they have a conviction to continue on their work, uh, for instance, civil rights, right? So, so like for, if you look at the civil rights unit within USDOJ, um, you know, Eric Holder, when he was attorney general, he actually called it the gem of the Department of Justice, right? Because because there was this huge emphasis on the work that they did. They placed about 20 cities under consent decree during the Obama administration. And now you talk to some of those folks that are still working for the Justice Department Civil Rights Unit, and, and they tell you that they're just hoping to survive, whatever that means, you know, whatever administration is in the White House, so they can actually get back into the work that they did. If you go above those career folks, a lot of the political appointees, they're, they're definitely steering policy and they're, and they're representing the values and beliefs of the president currently, who does not believe in consent decrees, does not believe in police oversight by the federal government at all, right? So if you look at Sessions, the very last day that Sessions had as, as, the, um, as the Justice Department, at the Justice Department, he left the Justice Department and left on his desk a letter that was pretty scathing about consent decrees and how he felt that they were just simply bad news, right? So now, you move it forward to the other part of your question and you say, what lies ahead, right? So you look at, you know, for me and, and through my lenses, what we need in the White House, regardless of the candidates, regardless of the political parties, what we need is someone that's going to insist on transparency and accountability. To me, those are the two key components of every law enforcement entity in the United States today. Um, and many, many agencies, some of whom I work with and I have a lot of respect for, they're just amazing people. I will tell you that they all have great policies. They have great procedures. They have all of that very well done. Um, but what, what is lacking, I think, across the board is an emphasis on what happens when those procedures are in writing, but they're not being carried out by the officers. And so, so obviously that accountability factor is very important. And I would argue that that's where data comes in, right? And that's where people like you and I come in to assist those agencies in the context of interpreting the data, figuring out what the data is showing, and enforcing whether or not, you know, those, those accountable factors are there. Now, the, the data is being produced right now, but no one's looking at it, you know, and, and so they're, they're, they're doing these great reports that are very fancy. They have wonderful color and wonderful print, but, but they have their meanings, right? So a lot of these agencies, you know, have that. They have wonderful cosmetic components and the data is there, but, but there's no analysis or little analysis is being done on the data. The other part of it is, 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 is transparency. You know, the communities out there, they, they want someone who's going to tell them the truth, whatever the truth is going to be. You look at the Metroplex right now, Eric, and you've got Arlington, Fort Worth, and Dallas all looking for a chief of police at the same time. In the 22 years that I've lived in the Metroplex, we've never seen anything of the like. And, 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 and it's, it's not uncommon, right? So across the U.S., you see these vacancies where people are leaving at the senior level and also at the junior level. People are just taking off. They're done. They're, they're fed up with it. So I think what we need is we need a, a leader in policing that will sit down with the community, that will try to educate them as it relates to the very complex job of a police officer, but also someone who's not going to be afraid to release videos, to have discussions about those things that matter, so that people can believe again in the law enforcement community um, in a way that that perhaps is deserving of both sides. Do, do you think in in looking ahead too that a lot of these issues have in eroding some of that that trust or just questioning that's being brought up about policing and so on? It, is is that already having an impact on the profession itself in terms of? Uh, of, of people leaving and, and the challenges of recruiting, do you do you see the need going forward of, of perhaps another federal initiative that uh, tries to put more police officers uh, on the streets that that tries to 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 uh, maybe restore some of that by at least providing additional resources uh, that may be 
uh, helpful at a time like this. I don't know what 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 trends are happening at this moment that uh, whether it's President Trump having to address it going forward or something that a, a, a Joe Biden is going to inherit and have to address in some way. Yeah, I, I think that's a great question. And I, I if you ask the law enforcement leadership right now, um, and, and I talk to them daily, right? If you ask them about this, they will tell you that there is a true serious concern that, that they're losing people that will never be replaced. Uh, it's across the board and it's throughout the entire United States. Uh, you talk to folks in Seattle, in, in, uh, in Michigan, in Detroit, in Miami, uh, in Houston, in Dallas, uh, there, there's sort of a, a universal concern that officers, that they're not going to be able to recruit talented people because young people that come to universities like Tarleton and get a degree in criminal justice or something or something close to CJ, and they go out there and look for a job, they're going to be looking for a federal job instead of a local uh, agency. So, so I think that the concern is there. The science told us that after Ferguson, in fact, uh, I just finished writing an article on this, that after Ferguson, there was something called the Ferguson effect, which basically meant that some people essentially you know, um, were turned off by, by going into law enforcement because of the bad publicity, the social media attacks and the, and the media attacks that they've had. It's hard to say whether, whether for, uh, the, the, the most uh, recent climate uh, of protest and, and the death of George Floyd is going to have that kind of effect. But, but I think it's reasonable to expect that it will. Um, and, and the question is, to what degree? Uh, and, and secondly, what can be done to, to address it? Like you said in your question, is this a presidential issue? And I think so. I, I think that, 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 that the president, the executive can do a lot in the context of facilitating dollars uh, to local agencies to bring talent. Um, and, and there is also a calling by the community to hire more minority officers uh, or for the, minor, for, for the officers to represent the, 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 the ethnic and racial background of the community that they serve. And so, so it, it's an interesting challenge, but, but I think that we're going to have a very challenging year or two ahead of us in the law enforcement community to figure out how we can address that gap. So between now and the election, we're going to have a series of presidential debates. And uh, I, last week's show, I covered uh, some of the data points that we're looking at swing voters, uh, showing that this has been one of the steadiest elections in terms of fluctuation uh, since 1940. Uh, it, it, there's not a lot of swing voters left out there from what the data is showing. And, and, and a lot of people have not moved from where they were six months ago. Uh, so, uh, but th that being said, uh, these debates, whether they persuade people to one candidate or the other, uh, my approach to them always is about substance. Uh, I, I, I don't want to hear them uh, demeaning each other in terms of what they've done or haven't done or so forth. I want to hear what they're going to do going forward. Uh, so I know in social science, we're in our social sciences, we're not so much on uh, predicting. And so I'm not asking necessarily to predict here, but uh, you being uh, in the field that you're in and, and having seen so many different perspectives and had so many experiences, if you're listening to those two candidates for president, what what are you listening for when, when we're talking about law and order, we're talking about criminal justice issues? What, what would you be hoping to be able to hear uh, from either candidate or, or perhaps even both of them uh, to, to see a way forward and how they may address uh, some of these issues? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question, but I will tell you that I, I would be hopeful to hear a plan. You know, more than rhetoric, I would wanna know what that plan looks like, right? What are the steps that they're going to be taking as leaders of the free world to be able to bring our country back together, to be able to bring the respect, the dignity to the profession in law enforcement, while at the same time preserving the rights of all Americans, uh, particularly uh, in this case, minorities. That has, have been, has been the issue for the past years. I, I think that, you know, in my, in my guess is my prediction about this issue is that, that, that neither one of them will produce that, right? Because this is gonna be more, if I were to predict anything, it's gonna be more about image versus essence, right? It's gonna be more about what they want to convey based on their political rhetoric than, than any specific plans, right? My concern going forward is that the elections, and this is where perhaps your world 
uh, of politics with my world of criminal justice, uh, you know, meet uh, is what happens the next day after the election. Um, in, in other words, are we going to have challenges across the country on what happens in the context of who won what and by what margin? And are there going to be legal challenges? And what is that going to do to the psychic of the United States, the people that are already angry, that are frustrated with COVID, that are frustrated with the loss of their jobs, that are frustrated with people in their families that have either gotten sick or lost their lives? What's going to happen to that? Because we criminologists, as you know, we not only study the rule of law, but we study the human condition, right? So you look at that and you say, what does that do to the human being that's out there in the streets feeling that they just don't have the time, the patience, or the interest for politicians to go at each other's throat, um, and they just want solutions, and they want to make sure their families are not sick, and they won't get sick, and that the country is going to move forward. That's what I'm concerned about. And the, and, and because I think that when or if that happens, we are in, in a new turf in this United States that we've never been through before. I, I want to thank you for joining us today and offering that perspective uh, because that, that I think for those of us that are in the uh, academic side of this and they give a lot of analysis to it, uh, that is one of the concerns. I mean, we, 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 we've had a tradition in this country of transferring power peacefully, uh, and, and, and yet that has multiple dimensions to it, as, as you allude to there. And, and it'll be interesting to see how that is going forward. And I think that may be one of the more significant challenges, no matter who, who is in office or in the White House. But thank you again, uh, Dr. Alex Del Carmen, uh, a professor of criminology and associate dean in the College of Liberal and Fine Arts. It's always a pleasure to have you uh, on the show and really go deep with some of these issues for our listeners in a way that can help them engage, especially as we approach uh, a general election and uh, have all of these things kind of in the air and on our mind and, and, and out there uh, in, in discussion. Thank you again for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Dr. Moore. I enjoyed it. Thank you. We are going to take a quick break and we'll be right back for more on politics. Politics can be confusing, but On Politics with Eric Morrow has your back. Follow the show on Facebook. Search On Politics with Eric Morrow to stay up to date with the show and all the sources to follow right along. Whenever news breaks. First in Minneapolis where he died, and then as the days went on, across America. FSN is there. Abbott responding to the coronavirus is a big deal, a task worth his government's time and attention. KTRL 90.5, classy radio for the Cross Timbers region, and your only local source for feature story news. Join us all week on 90.5 for the latest updates from FSN. find yourself wishing you didn't have to miss your favorite radio show? Well, wish no more because KTRL 90.5 FM is now streaming online. Tune in to catch your favorite broadcasts and shows live right at home from your computer or mobile device. To listen, please visit tarletonradio.com or click listen live at KTRL.FM. Welcome back to On Politics. I'm Dr. Eric Morrow here at Tarleton State University, and we want to thank Dr. Alex Del Carmen again for joining us uh, for that very engaging segment, looking at the role of the presidency in relation to law and order, policing, and other issues, especially looking to the upcoming election, and we'll want to give that more attention and, and certainly see what the focus will be as the campaigns continue and most certainly in the debates uh, that will be happening here in a few weeks. Before I turn to the last segment of the show and kind of bring it back here to Texas to look at some specific issues related to uh, the pandemic and the governor's orders and its recent announcements this past week, I do want to say that we are entering the week here of the one-year anniversary for this show. So On Politics has uh, been on now, KTRL 90.5 FM, uh, for a year, and it has been an interesting and engaging year, given all the issues, especially a general election cycle and the format of the shows. We started out with having two of us, with uh, Dr. Cogley uh, on as well, and then, of course, switching to a more interview format. 
Uh, we will continue to uh, change that up a little bit. I hope in a couple of weeks to welcome back Marcy Reynolds and Casey Thompson for our roundtable, especially after that first debate. But we will continue in this next year, our second year, to bring you quality interviews to focus on information that helps you to engage with the issues that are out there on a local, state, federal, and international levels, just so that you um, not only can make informed decisions uh, and, under, and really understand some of the challenges, the complexity of these issues, but that you can engage in dialogue with them as well. Uh, you can pursue more knowledge about these critical issues that impact our lives. And so the format of the show is being nonpartisan, is being very focused on looking at the role politics has to play and trying to sometimes move through that and engage with the very central issues and to get the information that's needed to be informed will be our focus uh, in the weeks and, of course, hopefully uh, years ahead. So look for more on politics. As I said at the beginning of the show, you can follow us on Facebook. You can download previous episodes from sound or listen on SoundCloud and then download his podcast. And now, as we announced, uh, Amazon podcast is a source for on politics as well. So you have plenty of opportunities, whether it's live streaming online at tarletonradio.com, right here each week, noon broadcast on 90.5 FM uh, or through SoundCloud and podcasts. So we encourage you to engage as often as you can and also offer feedback. I would appreciate feedback on Facebook uh, or through uh, other, other venues in order to give us your perspectives and what you appreciate and like about the show, what you find beneficial. In this last segment of the show today, I want to bring this back to Texas, as I said, and I wanted to look into a little bit of research that I've been doing on the state response to the pandemic. And this is primarily focused on the executive orders that have been issued by Governor Abbott uh, since the beginning of the pandemic, since the, the beginning responses, not just in Texas, but across the nation to what appeared to be a growing threat uh, in terms of the spread of the virus and how government should respond to try to protect, uh, limit in the spread of it, but to protect uh, public health, to protect citizens, uh, uh, to try to manage through this and figure out how do you address it and, and limit its impact. One of the primary concerns that we see through this, and I'll go right to the heart of the point, is the economic impact. I mean, this has been at the forefront of the response in Texas from the very beginning. Uh, it was very much a concern in that you had a Texas economy that was on fire in the last part of 2019 and coming into 2020, seeing record uh, revenue collections by the state uh, due to both demographic growth as well as business growth in the state, growth in spending. And then all of a sudden, uh, things contracted considerably. And that happened when things began to be shut down, when the governor issued executive orders uh, that began to shut down uh, the state and, of course, a dramatic decrease in revenues uh, by the beginning of May that led the, the governor to, one, look at how do we reopen the state? How do we recover from this? How do we prevent further significant losses in revenue that is going to impact state agencies and counties and cities and school districts across the country? Uh, but also uh, in really looking at how to manage that in response to a virus that continued to see in infection rates increase. Uh, so this was very much a concern at that point in time. And I want to kind of take us back a little bit uh, to, to, to look at this in light of what Governor Abbott announced on Thursday. So if you've tuned into the news or if you've gotten a little bit of information about this, we know that Governor uh, Greg Abbott came out this past Thursday stating that Texas was going to loosen more of the restrictions that have been put in place uh, primarily letting businesses increase to 75% capacity. So we, we had moved to 75% in the summer. That was pulled back when uh, death rates and infection rates and the demand on hospitals began to increase. 
this was in July into August. Now we're seeing that while infection rates are increasing, some of that attributed to testing, hospitalizations, and, and the death rate attributed to COVID-19 has uh, declined. And so now the opportunity here is to try to expand that reopening as there has been some progress in limiting that impact, that, that significant health impact, both on the health system, but also on, on deaths itself. And so the, the governor announced this. He, he also said that he was not ready to reopen bars. That's been a point of contentious, contention over the summer, and we'll come back to that uh, shortly. Uh, he also uh, emphasized that the reasons for doing this are because of the metrics that, that his task force has been watching. And those metrics are trending downward. Hospitalizations, uh, the um, uh, drop has been almost 70% uh, just in the last two months. Uh, the, uh, the numbers for uh, new cases has begun to drop or has been dropping uh, where the daily new cases are just over 3,000 or close to 3,500, which is a significant decline from the highs in July uh, when we saw this thing just, uh, just becoming very, very uh, significant, the number of cases growing uh, by large numbers on a daily basis. And so this opening is the next step in trying to mitigate the economic impact on trying to try to get things back uh, to some level of normalcy. Uh, the threshold is still in place for hospitals, so there are some hospital districts or areas of the state that will remain under certain orders and limits. Uh, because their hospitalization rate related to COVID has not dropped below uh, or, uh, 15%. Elective procedures, which have been restricted since uh, uh, earlier in the summer, are now allowed uh, throughout uh, certain areas of the state. And then also, as we heard, the by the end of this month, uh, there will be the release of restrictions on visiting nursing homes and lawn care um, uh, facilities, uh, treatment facilities, assisted living centers, uh, these long-term care facilities where uh, people will be able to go back in on a limited basis. And of course, it'll have to be people who are selected as family caregivers and then will be given that, that access. So this is where we are today, but let's go back just briefly over what has happened over the last few months. And it's hard to believe this this short amount of time has passed. It seems much, much longer, I think, for all of us that in terms of our experience and all that we've had to, be, had to deal with in our workplaces, in our homes, in our communities. But we go back to March where uh, a state of disaster uh, was declared on March 13th. Uh, the governor citing his power uh, to uh, meet the dangers to the state and people presented by disasters. And so that's a direct quote from the executive order that would follow on March 19th, directing these initial restrictions and closures. And so at that time, the governor directed the public to avoid social gatherings of more than 10 people, uh, to avoid eating and drinking in bars, restaurants and food courts or visiting gyms or massage parlors. He also at that time restricted visits to nursing homes retirement and long-term care facilities. And of course, that was uh, the executive order that also closed schools. So they would remain closed for the remainder of the year, offering instruction online. The governor also at that time listed additional suggestions. And a lot of these were just people being conscious of what they were doing, of how they were engaging with the public, what types of activities they were involved in. And he also identified essential services. And this has been one of the things along the way that uh, each executive order has identified essential services where these restrictions uh, did not apply. By the end of, of March, six additional executive orders uh, were issued, including the postponement of non-essential surgeries and medical treatments, requirements for hospitals to submit reports of capacity, testing centers to submit COVID-19 results, uh, there were quarantines for travelers, mandatory quarantine for travelers from various states that were considered virus hotspots. So if you entered the 
state by air or even roadway travel. There was at one point a restriction where if you traveled into the state from Louisiana by road, you were required to quarantine for 14 days. Um, again, at the end of that month, uh, there was an extension of the earlier order that uh, encouraged the public to avoid restaurants and bars. And that would remain in place. In fact, that had a, a significant impact and retail businesses as well uh, going into the month of April. Now, this is when we begin to see, and I, I don't have all the economic data in front of me today. We've talked about that in an earlier show. And we'll probably come back to that when this is all over and look at what the economic impact is and has been, especially as we look to the budget process for the state in this next legislative session. But in April, it was very clear that the economic impact was quite significant. And this is when the governor issued orders to pull back 5% of the state budget for this cycle and also for state agencies and institutions to plan for another 5% cut in the next cycle. The focus of the governor, though, at this point was on how do we reopen? How do we mitigate this economic impact while still trying to address the spread of COVID-19. And so he created a strike force to open Texas, which is the official name of it, on April 17th, and then followed that with additional executive orders uh, that rescinded the mandatory quarantine for travelers from other parts of the United States. It opened retail businesses and other venues to 25% capacity. So this included restaurants and movie theaters, shopping malls, museums, wedding venues, salons and barbershops, and, and so on. Additional reopenings followed by later in the month, which also increased dine-in restaurant capacity to 50%, uh, which we were just at. Now, he just raised it to 75, but at 50%, exec another executive order permitted bars at that time to open to 25% capacity, uh, as well as bowling alleys, bingo halls, rodeos, equestrian events, driving concerts, and even amateur sporting events. Of course, all of these orders included the, the, the focus on public health measures, which included social distancing, uh, the capacity, okay, you had to stay below this capacity, uh, and, and, and try to uh, manage these, especially in a lot of businesses that may not be so much concerned about capacity, but that patrons of those businesses needed to uh, maintain uh, social distancing. So again, the focus through all of this, limiting the economic impact. This measured approach continued as cases continued to grow. And I think this is something that we see through all of this is that cases have continued to grow. We were at 108 on March 13th. Uh, here we are in uh, uh, today at over almost 650,000 uh, cases in Texas. So you can see exponential growth in the number of cases, but again, the metrics that have been followed by the governor and others have been hospitalizations, uh, deaths, and of course, trying to prevent or slow down uh, the spread of the virus. Uh, of course, more and more testing has been done uh, throughout uh, the year, and so all of this is contributing to identifying uh, the growth in the virus, but also then trying to uh, mitigate uh, its impact. So, as we move through the summer, and this is just to kind of wrap this up and then make a couple of, of, of quick points about uh, what we see and what we can really learn from all of this. Uh, the, uh, by what we see by uh, the beginning of June is that the 50% ocup occupancy limit set by a previous order was lifted for outdoor areas and events. Uh, restaurants were permitted to open to 75% occupancy and indoor bars were in similar establishments were allowed to serve customers who were seated. And these de this decrease in restrictions also though had an impact and that impact was something that had to be addressed uh, by the end of the month. What we saw was almost a, a, a tripling of cases uh, or I would say a doubling of cases is what, what we saw from the beginning to the end of June so that June 3rd, where we had close to 70,000 cases, by June 26th, 140,000 cases. The impact on hospitals was significant. The death rate was climbing. The infection rate was growing very, very rapidly, that within a week, we went from 137,000 to 175,000 cases, 
and it was clearly approaching uh, a rate of uh, a thousand deaths uh, per week. Um, uh, so it was very, very challenging to see these things happening. And the, this is when the governor again steps in. And on June 26, there's a, a, an issuance of an executive order that closes bars. It pulls restaurants back to 50 percent. And then, of course, the face coverings, the executive order related to that will be issued on July 2nd. And that's kind of where things were left. And when we started to see some progress here, even though infection rates continue to grow, the impact on hospitalizations and the number of deaths, the death rate started to decline at that point. Now, in the midst of all of this, and this is what I go back to what I originally said, I, I gave you that overview just to kind of give you that full picture. What we see in all of this and some of the things that, that, that I'm pointing out is the responses of, of various people that reflect the political culture of the state. We talked about this uh, a, a few months ago with Cal Gilson, uh, where people are emphasizing economic freedom, where the, the state is, is very much stresses economic viability and economic growth. And then also on the other side, as we've seen with the responses to face coverings and even bar owners to bars continuing to be closed, is uh, personal liberty. Uh, just this very strong element of that in our political culture that pushes back against government and any attempt to uh, restrict personal action or economic freedom, or as we were saying, this, uh, the, this, this result of economic impact. And so what we see with the governor, and, and I think there'll, there'll be lots of things that are poured into this to study for years to come, and how you navigate something like this when you are trying to balance economic impact with uh, facing a pandemic, uh, that there, there was really has been an attempt by the governor to try to balance all of this in the middle of all of those pressures, in the middle of uh, here in a state where economic viability is so critical, when economic freedom and personal liberty is also very much a focus of political culture, what role does government have in trying to help get through a crisis like this and, and, and try to find uh, some balance. So we'll be giving more reflection to that uh, in the months ahead as we move through this pandemic. But I thought that would be very helpful to kind of look that over and see where we are on that timeline of reopening the state and how that has been approached over the, the last number of months that we have been facing this. I wanna thank you for joining us today and we'll look forward to being back with you again next week on politics. With production from me, Taylor Welch, and me, Carissa Cole. Find more great shows by searching Tarleton Radio Network wherever you get your podcasts.